and welcome to Unmanageable, news from the unruly people and places of Mendocino County, California. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Dr. Lila June is an indigenous poet, singer-songwriter, hip-hop artist, community organizer, and scholar. This spring, she and co-creator Desiree Harp came to our community for an event on food sovereignty, organized by the local nonprofit Native Health in Native Hands. Native Health in Native Hands is a native-led, native-run 501c3 nonprofit created by Kinestet people, the ancestral homelands of the Kinestet now called Wailaki, are in northern Mendocino, southern Humboldt, and southwestern Trinity counties. This special episode of Unmanageable will feature a recording of that extraordinary food sovereignty event at the Mateel, starting with excerpts of Lila and Desi's powerful original music and poetry. In the second half of the episode, Dr. Lila June gives a talk called Architects of Abundance, based on her Ph.D. research into indigenous land use and food systems. All of the examples she cites, from the floodplain agriculture of the American Southwest to the ancient aquaculture of the Aboriginal Australians, persisted in abundance and ecological balance for thousands of years. The episode ends with Desiree Harp and her exploration of how language and the land shape each other over time. From the unceded ancestral homeland of the Kinestet, here are Lila June and Desiree Harp, recorded live at the Mateel Community Center in Redway, California, on April 28, 2023. I remember the days when being Indian was lethal, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had a rough past, but get ready for the sequel. Get ready for the glorious comeback of our people, yeah. Rise up. Thank you. So good to be here with, with your nation. Um, this is my good sister and good friend, uh, Desiree Harp. And uh, we were asked to come here by Perry to just stand behind them as a beautiful nation and everything that they're doing. Uh, I'll introduce myself in the traditional manner and then Desi and I are gonna do a, a musical set for y'all. We love to share our messages through the medium of song. Uh, and then we're gonna give a little presentation each uh, regarding uh, our experiences working with the land and food sovereignty and things like that. But we wanted to start out with a little bit of music to get the um, energy flowing and stuff. Um, but yeah, so yeah, um, greetings my relatives and my people. I'm from the clan of the Deneh nation. We are also incorrectly known as Navajo. We are indigenous to what they now call New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and Arizona, but we call it Denebakea, the people's land. Um, 
We just found footprints in the area that are 23,000 years old. Uh, we believe we've actually been there much longer than that even. Um, and these are our cousins, the Kinestet Nation. Here, a, a lot of people in California, they speak the same language as my people out in the desert. Uh, and then even up into Canada and Alaska and down into northern Mexico, they speak what they call Athabascan languages. But we are one people, you know? And the Apache and the Navajo, they split us up. But that's, that's a colonial view of like, oh, you're Apache, you're Navajo. No, we're one people. We have different dialects, but we're one people. And so our people managed a huge swath of land from Alaska to northern Mexico. And these are our relatives, our Athabascan-speaking relatives. So uh, that's where I come from. We get our clans from our mothers. Um, and so that's where I get my clan from. We're a matrilineal people. Uh, we get our last name from our mother, not our father. And we honor the, the progenitor of life, which is uh, the woman. Uh, in that manner, I present myself as a Dene woman. I'm so happy to be here. And I'll let Desi introduce herself if you want. Hello, my name is Desiree, also known as Tsimito, which means hummingbird in our language. So my people come from, most people know the name as Wapo. And so that was actually a colonial name that was given to us by the Spanish people who called us Guapo, and then the English-speaking settlers changed it um, to Wapo. But we had different names for ourselves, and there was four main groups of our people. There was the Lalique up in Clear Lake, um, and then there was also the Mishwa, the Mutsutsul, and the Mayakama. And I am a descendant of many lineages, but the language in which I speak today is Mishwa. And this language was passed on by my Auntie Laura Somersault. And so that's the language that I'm speaking today. And um, our language is related to the Yukian language family. And so you all are our relatives, the Yuki people. Um, there was also many Wapo people that were not only sent to Alexander Valley Rancheria, but also to Round Valley. And so we are your, your relatives in many ways. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, as a Dene woman, I come from a nation of, I think we're like 200,000 people, enrolled members. Um, we're the, one of the largest nations. Our reservation is the largest. And it's really important to me to stand behind Cali natives who are continue to be marginalized, continue to be uh, pushed off to the side. Uh, I was just driving through Desi's homeland today, which is Napa Valley, and just seeing how they transformed her entire homeland into an alcohol factory really upset me. <laughs> but you know, it's like so important for us within this place that we now call California to really stand behind the nations who, as you probably know, quite unfortunately and tragically, were being hunted for money like uh, only 150 years ago. And so it's really important that we stand behind your beautiful nations. And I'm so honored to be here to place my feet on your homelands. And uh, we're really excited today to bring uh, a little bit of love to this very beautiful cause. And hopefully this is the seed to, to much more events and much more uh, beautiful healings for Kinestet people.
I want to tell a little story about how me and Lila met because we actually met the same day that we wrote this song together and then had to <laughs> perform it in front of thousands of people. And that's how Hundreds. we became best friends. Lila <laughs> says I call everyone my best friend, but she's really my best friend. Um, so, yeah. I remember that. This song is really special because we were asked to, to open up for a talk about the environment that was at the Bioneers. And so we felt like it was really important to open it up with a conversation about reconciliation because we understand that as indigenous peoples, we are not the only caretakers of the earth. We all have to work together as one to take care of this earth. Our father is colonialism. Our mother attempted genocide. Our brother is anger. And our sister is pain. But you and I, what will we become? What will be our name? You and I, children of war, with red and white skin, how will we pick up the pieces and begin again? Red, black, white, and yellow, step into the hoop as one, begin again in peace and beauty, mend the earth and what we've done. When I close my eyes, I see all of the races braided, braided into the earth, braided like the frequencies and harmonies of a common song. When I close my eyes, I see hands of many colors reaching to touch the earth. We are here to invent a new sport where everybody wins and there is only one team. Step into the hoop as one begin again in peace and beauty. Mend the earth and what we've done. This is the reconciliation of bloodlines, skin tones, and histories. Only by forgiving one another and acknowledging the atrocities, honoring the womb, and living out the prophecies can we begin to heal our relationship with this sacred turtle island. Creator, may you help us to walk forward in beauty together as one. Creator, may you help us to walk forward in beauty together as one. Creator, may you help us to walk forward in beauty together as one. Creator, may you help us to walk forward in beauty together as one. Oh. Thank you. Okay, so Desi and I are just gonna go back and forth, play like some song tag right now, and hang out for a bit. Um, all right, so who here knows how to beatbox? Yes, all right, we got one. We got one. Well, within the next five minutes, you're all gonna raise your hand and say that you know how to beatbox. Okay, so first of the three elements is like a Can I hear you guys do that on the count of three? One, two, three. 
oh, right, okay, okay. And then the next one is like a tss, okay, one, two, three. Ooh, okay, okay, okay. And the next one is like in the back of your throat, like you're calling your horse. On the count of three, one, two, three. All right, now let's put some of those together like Okay, one, two, three. Oh, ice cold, ice cold. Okay, now let's try like a one, two, three. Ooh, okay, okay, now we'll put those together. Okay, one, two, three. Okay, okay, good. Now let's try like a Nobody? Okay. All right. So now you all know how to beatbox. We were all given sacred duties to this land. Take care of Mother Earth and she will help you understand that everything we need is in the palm of our hands. No need to drill, mine, conquer, or extract. With faith in the creator, we will blaze a brand new path. When we let go of fear, the greed turns into laughter. Unity of all people, that is what we're after. Cruising down the red road with sweet grass on my dashboard. Used to drug and drink, but now I'm sober, now I'm faster. Sharp as a tacky told me, can't hold me back now. I just want to build a new world for my children With love, prayer, and unity This nation is rebuilding Up from the ash of genocide and division Red, black, yellow, white as one That's the vision Every race participates in this new beginning Sacred is the masculine and sacred is the feminine Infinite, indigenous, continuous, deliberate Nothing can stop the people once they got their intention set Some people say that the land can be owned some people say that the land can be owned. Deep in our hearts, we know that isn't so, because we don't even own this flesh or this bone. No, we can't take it with us on the spirit's journey home. No, the only thing we own is the lessons that we know. So when we wake from the slumber to remember we are one, one beautiful people under one beautiful sun, we must also release all claims to the earth, because she don't belong to us. We belong to her. Mother Earth was meant to be a place where we could learn. We pray to Chesapa for a blessing on the world. We practice Satyagraha because violence doesn't work. We pray for those who are injured and those who injure. I'm gonna say that one again. We pray for those who are injured and those who injure. Unconditional prayers for the whole wide world. We sun dance year round. Yeah, we let the sage burn. Cause when we pray for the people, we will start to understand what it means to be true woman, what it means to be true man. Cradled in the arms of the sky and the sand, just strands in the tapestry of the master plan. Cause together there is nothing that we cannot achieve. Together there is nothing that we cannot achieve. Can I hear you guys say that? Together there is nothing that we cannot achieve. Together there is nothing that we cannot achieve. Together there is nothing that we cannot achieve. Find love, find healing, find unity. Hon Jean na hustling, Hon Jean na hustling, Hon Jean na hustling, Hon
Jean Lahasli. So, me and Myla have been on many journeys together, and one of the journeys that we were on together is the Run for Salmon prayer journey. So this song was a song that came when there was a lot of people that were feeling hopeless because of the dams and we're trying to bring back the salmon and we're trying to get these laws changed and there are a lot of government officials that are not always cooperative. And so as I was listening to everybody speaking and they were getting really sad, I just went down and I prayed by the water and I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna um, go to that place where I, I lost hope. So I wrote this song um, with a group of women and we, we made this song called Water So Deep, Water So Wide. Water so deep, water so wide, water braiding the earth and the sky. Mountains so strong, mountains so tall, lifted by spirit and holding us all. Let the mountains guide us and the waters carry our songs back to creation where we belong when we free our voices we free our hearts breaking chains inside tearing us apart water so deep water so wide water braiding the earth and the sky Mountains so strong, mountains so tall, lifted by spirit and holding us all. Salmon are returning, ancient paths in the stars. The light of life inside us is lit by the same spark when we lose our way think there's nowhere left to turn prayers are all around we can always return water so deep water so wide water braiding the earth and the sky Mountains so strong, mountains so tall, lifted by spirit and holding us all. Oh. So, um, that's why I'm so lucky. Have Desi as my best friend. And I wrote a little song about them. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, I'm going to sing a different song. But I probably will write a song one day about how you're my best friend. <laughs> um, 
This song is called Thank You. And it's actually about uh, my journey, you know, as a, as a woman. And, um, you know, when you grow up uh, with after 500 years of attempted genocide, your communities have some issues, you know. We have one out of two of our people in Dene, Denebokea have diabetes or pre-diabetes, one out of two. We have obviously alcohol issues because they would import alcohol into our communities by the barrel. They would import laudanum into the forts. It's like an opiate in the 1800s. They knew a warrior was more easily defeated if she was drunk or high. Um, the third leading cause of death for native women nationwide is homicide. It's not even on the top 10 reasons for death for white women or black women or Asian women. Because we are trafficked so often, abducted and left for dead. Top three, uh, the third leading cause. Um, our median household income is 30 grand a year in the Navajo reservation. Um, household income. And that's the median, meaning half my people make less than that. And it's not because we're stupid or lazy or can't get ourselves together. We're just trying to stand up from attempted genocide. We're, we're not even supposed to be here. The official policy was extermination. So I'm actually really proud of my people for even getting up in the morning most days. We're beautiful, despite all of our, <laughs> our uh, issues. So growing up in that community, you know, I started to do drugs myself when I was 11 years old got really addicted really young um, and started to become an alcoholic in my, in my teenage years, uh, just like so many before me in my lineage. And um, when you're drunk, you know, and high, a lot of bad stuff happens to you at the parties, you know, stuff that you wish didn't happen to you. And as women, we tend to always blame ourselves, right? Oh, if I wouldn't have drank that night, that wouldn't have happened to my body. Or if I wouldn't have, if I would have said no, or if I would have said no louder, if I would have said no in a different way, they wouldn't have done that to me. Or if I wouldn't have, uh, if I would have done a karate chop, I could have got away. But oftentimes I didn't know I had choices, you know? So I often would let folks do, not let folks do, but folks would take advantage of me when I was um, under the influence. And this is very common. And then instead of saying, wow, that hurt, that wasn't nice of them, I would blame myself. And I would implode and do more and more drugs and more and more alcohol. And then it would happen again in this, this cycle. So I did somehow get into Stanford University. I don't, still don't know how. By the time I got in, I was a full-blown alcoholic. And there's even more drugs and more alcohol at the college campuses. So I got into it even more. And more bad stuff happened to me. Real bad stuff, waking up in the morning, not knowing where the heck I was. And then my junior year of college, I realized I was probably gonna die if I kept doing the drugs. And so I got down on my knees and I prayed. And I said, Creator, can you please help me get sober? Because I'm pretty sure if I don't do something, I'm gonna die. And uh, it didn't seem like anyone was listening to my prayer because just a few weeks later, I was back at it again. But sure enough, a few months later, you know, all these people started coming into my life. Like all of this beautiful stuff started happening serendipitously. 
elders, knowledge keepers started showing me how to live. And they showed me that uh, what was going on with me was not my, my fault. And for the first time in my life, someone said, it's not your fault. And also for the first time in my life, they said, you are sacred. And I thought I had lost my sacredness long ago. I thought I was tainted, ugly, abused, etc. And they said, what happened to your body never hurt you because you are not your body, you are your spirit. And nothing anyone does to you can ever even touch you because your body changes cells every few months, you know? It's your spirit that is remaining. So you are not your body. So they never touched you. So there's nothing even really to heal from. <laughs> the only thing to heal from is the, the notion that it was your fault. To stop the self-hatred, to love myself. And they also taught me, we don't see you as a victim. We see you as a veteran. A veteran of a war against women, a war against men, a war against two-spirit relatives. And we honor you as the same way we'd honor a veteran coming home from war. There's no pity. There's no, um, you know, there's no nothing to be ashamed of here. You're, you're a warrior. And they said another thing, if you want to be a warrior for the creator, and I say, oh yeah, I really want to do that. I got nothing else to do. I'm just sitting here, you know, being silly, chain smoking. <laughs> I say, yeah, I want to be a warrior. They said, well, you'll be the best warrior if those chemicals are not in your body. And I want to thank all of you today because I wanted to fight for you. And you're the reason that I had something to fight for. And you're the reason I can say that this coming December, I will be 11 years completely sober. Not a single puff, not a single drop, not a single line, not a single pill. I even drink decaf. That's how boring I am. But you know, I've never been so high in my life. High on love, high on service, high on the community that we build, high on being a, a servant of life, servant of the community, servant of creator. And so that's what this song is called, Thank You, is thanking the creator for getting me sober and also helping me heal from what so many women, so many people experience and not carrying any shame anymore. I just wanna thank you for everything you do. Just want to thank you, yeah. Taught me how to love myself when nobody else believed in me. Yeah, they didn't see what you see. So now I give it all away. All the pain and all the shame. Yeah, yes, said I give it all away. Like a burning flame You said I give it all away yeah. Oh, every single day No longer live my life for myself Now I live it for everybody else Never knew you could be so poor And have so much wealth 
Cause now I'm rich in my soul Like never before Yes, said I'm rich in my soul And your love is my gold You said I'm rich in my soul Like never before And now I I would die Before I Let them take me away Don't take me away Don't take me away In that chariot of flames All the addiction and the pain Cause I am yours now Creator, I'm yours In your everlasting arms In your everlasting arms And I just want to thank you yeah, For everything you do Just want to thank you, Creator for everything you are you taught me how to love myself when nobody else believed in me they didn't see what you see thank you This is a disclaimer that me and Lila actually haven't seen each other in a really long time. And so, um, yeah, we're just kind of flowing with it right now. And that's actually one of the reasons why her and I became such close friends is because we wanted to, we wanted to heal from the trauma and we also wanted to tell our stories to be able to help other people to heal from that trauma and I was actually abused a lot when I was younger. And, um, you know, I think that some people, when they suffer, they, they suffer in silence. And I was one of those people who suffered in silence. Um, I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself. Um, and I think that that's something that this society does to us is like, they are constantly making us feel like we have to fit into some mold and we're constantly feeling like we're not good enough. But for indigenous peoples, we, we are sacred and we understood that we were sacred. And I think that that guilt and shame and blame, a lot of that was stuff that was taught to us and it really taught us how to hate ourselves. And so it's really important to remember how to love ourselves. It's really important to remember how to set those healthy boundaries. And I think for a long time, I thought that I was supposed to sacrifice myself for the well-being of others. And it was actually Lila, when I met her, she reminded me that um, it's okay for, for me to, to walk in beauty. Um, and I actually talked to a medicine woman and she said to me that, um, you know, this is something that comes from historical trauma because, you know, the woman, they used to have to like 
sleep with the soldiers just to be able to get food and water and stuff like that. And so what happened was that 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 mentality got passed on to our generation to where a lot of us think that we have to go into uncomfortable situations or we have to make these compromises in order for us to just survive. And um, so this song actually came to me when I was by the water and it was just uh, something that came to me and um, was helping me to step into my medicine and um, I just sing it to remember everybody else to step into theirs. When we give without expecting, balance comes to heal the earth. When we only comfort taking, all of us can feel her hurt. They cut off our brains, killed us as we prayed to make us doubt our faith. Our men were enslaved while women were raped to blind us from our strength. So break me open to my center to heal past and present wounds. Tell the stories of creation. Plant these roots, make life anew. They say, trust your medicine. You were chosen to wake up the medicine in the earth. You are the returning of your ancestors. Step into your power and all your worth. Salama. So I'm just going to read a little poem now. Poem I wrote for my grandma and for all our grandmas. <clears throat> I come from the Nen Nation. We come from the desert, you know. Uh, we're desert people. And so we have a word called honjon, which means beauty. Beauty of being connected to all creation. And so this um, word is a, uh, takes a whole poem to translate sometimes. <clears throat> it is dawn. The sun is rising in the sky, and my grandmother and I are singing prayers to the horizon. This morning, she is teaching me the meaning of Honjon. Although there's no direct translation from Denepezad, the Navajo language, into English, every living being knows what Honjon means. For Honjon is every drop of rain. It's every leaf on every tree. It's your every eyelash. It's every feather on the bluebird's wing. Honjon is undeniable beauty. And my grandmother knows this well, for she speaks a language that grew out of the desert floors, like redstone arms reaching into the sky and praising creation for all of its brilliance. Honjon is remembering that we are a part of the Earth's brilliance. It is remembering that humanity is an expression of the Earth's brilliance. And my grandmother knows this well, for she speaks the same language as snowstorms. She speaks the same language as horse hooves, 
hitting the dirt on birthdays, for she was a midwife, and she would gallop to the women in labor until she became fluent in the language of suffering mothers, fluent in the language of joyful mothers, fluent in the language of handing a glowing newborn to its creator. Honjon is an experience, she says, but it is not something you can experience alone. The eagles tell us this as they lock talons in the stratosphere during courting season and fall to the earth as one. Honjon is inter-beauty, and my grandmother knows this well, for she speaks the same language as the male rain, which shoots lightning boys through the sky and pummels the green corn children and huddles the horses against the cliff sides in the early afternoon. She also speaks the language of the female rain, which sends the scent of dust and sage into our whole ones, into our homes, and casts rainbows in the sky. Us de we know what Honjon means. And each and every one of you here, you know what Honjon means. And I believe that deep down inside, we know what Honjon does not mean. Like the days we walk in sadness, like the days we live in fear, like the days we live for money, or the days when I lived for fame, or like the days when the conquistadors came. They climbed off of their horses and told us they were going to take away the mountains. Now we knew this was not Honjon because we knew you could not own a mountain, but we knew you could make it Honjon once again. So we took their silver swords and we took their silver coins and we melted them with fire and buffalo hide bellows and recast them into beautiful turquoise and silver jewelry pieces and placed it around their necks. We took the silver helmets straight off of their heads and transformed it into our fearless jewelry. Honjon is like this, she says. It is the healing of our broken bones. It is the healing of our broken hearts. It is the prayer that carried us through genocide and disease. It is the prayer that will carry all of us through anything, through this global warming, through this global fear, through these illusions that dance in our minds like shadows. This morning, my grandmother is talking about something very important. She is teaching me that sometimes the easiest and most elegant way to defeat an army of hatred is to simply stand before it and sing to it. Sing to it your most beautiful songs until it falls to its knees and surrenders. It will do this, she says, because it will have finally found a sweeter fire than revenge. A sweeter fire even than greed. It will have found heaven. It will have found Honjon. And so my grandmother is talking to the colors of the sky at dawn as she does every morning, as she's saying, which means beauty and joy are restored again. It is dawn, my friends. Wake up, for the night is over. Thank you. Yes. We are extremely happy to stand behind the Kinesthet Nation today. And thank you all for coming. And I think really it, today it's about weaving connections.
it's about weaving alliances, and it's about weaving community, and it's about weaving uh, the revolution. I mean, because right now we need uh, a lot of alternatives to be flooding into our paradigms, because right now the paradigm of profit maximization, uh, born of colonization, is not working. I think we can all agree on that. So we're here not only to sing some songs, but later to give a speech. Um, I recently finished the PhD last December, and that was fun, excruciatingly fun. Um, but it was all about, you know, indigenous land management and indigenous food systems and the intersection thereof. And so we're really excited to share a little bit about that to kind of add some color and resolution to the, the, the topic of indigenous land management. Um, so we're just gonna end with this song. Um, so happy to be here, stand behind Kinesthetic Nation. And then I'm just gonna roll into a, a brief uh, uh, power, PowerPoint, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, about the, the PhD research and, and which, by the way, the dissertation is available online. It's called Architects of Abundance, Indigenous Regenerative Food and Land Management Systems and the Excavation of Hidden History. So it's a super fun thing. I hope it's fun to read. I don't know, maybe it's not. I'm also trying to make um, a more uh, regular book about it. Okay, here we go. Indigenous people, shine your light, we are equal, oh yeah, yeah. I remember the days when our prayers were illegal. I remember the days when being Indian was lethal, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had a rough past, but get ready for the sequel. Get ready for the glorious comeback of our people, yeah. Rise up, all you warriors of love, all you answers through the prayers of our ancestors from above. I could feel it in my heart, can you feel it in your blood? I could hear the seventh fire calling us to wake up. All nations rise, rise up, cause now's your time. We don't have to hide anymore, cause now's our time. All nations rise, rise up, cause now's your time. We don't have to hide anymore, cause now's our time. With forgiveness as my bow and my prayers as my arrows, pull it back and let go. I watch them fly like sparrows, have hope, have hope. With compassion as my shield and faith down to our marrow, we will walk the pollen path even when it gets narrow. Yeah, yeah. Resurrect, yes, you can bend. That we seen the single mama raising children on the res. We seen domestic violence tear up our will we have left. We seen the alcohol take it all and leave us dead. We seen the children take their own lives when they can't take the dread anymore. It's a one. Can't take the dread anymore. Or no, we won't take the dread anymore. 
Cause we can't take the dread anymore. Yes, it's a war, but we've seen it all before. And now we know we can change it, cause that's why we were born. We know we are the ones that we have been waiting for. Yes, we are the ones grandma has been praying for, so rise up. Yes, all you warriors of love, all you answers to the prayers of our ancestors from above. I could feel it in my heart. Can you feel it in your blood? I could hear the seventh fire calling us to wake up. Pueblo hermoso, levántanse es nuestro tiempo. No tienes que esconderte más. Porque ahorita es nuestro tiempo. This next verse is in Spanish to honor all the indigenous peoples who live south of that imaginary border, uh, which has divided a continent that was once very much connected. Mujer indígena, tú eres tan sagrada y traigas medicina de tu suelo todavía. A pesar del abuso de tu cuerpo y tu tierra, respetamos tus ancestros y la suya cultura. Hombre indígena, Tú eres honorable y yo veo la fuerza que todavía sobrevive. A pesar del abuso de tu raza venerable, yo respeto tus ritos, tus danzas, tus padres, guerreros del amor y guerreros de la paz. Sí, no vamos a escondernos más. We are warriors of love. We are warriors of peace. And we will not hide ourselves anymore. All nations rise, rise up cause now's your time. We don't have to hide anymore cause now's our time. Yay. You know they say that history is written by the victors. But how can, be there, how can there be a victor if the war isn't over? Creator is sending his very best warriors, her very best warriors, uh, and they're coming right now to Earth to help us at this time. And in this battle, the only weapons we have and the only weapons we need are those of truth and faith and compassion. So I'm honored to be a warrior with you all in this battle too, to help heal our Mother Earth and our people, all people and all life. Uh, In our Diné language, we have two thunders. We have the large thunder, and then we have the other thunder, which is the smaller. So I named my son Ganesh, which means, in Diné, it means thunder. And he named his son Chetnes and Chagat, which means big thunder. Today, Chetnes and Chagat, his birthday, he turns 13 today. <laughs> And this gift that we're giving him too, you know, is a gift of, of sobriety and a gift of uh, seeing people standing together to help things be better for us. And so, you know, it's something that he'll always remember on his 13th birthday. You know, I heard Lila say something referring to her 13th. And, and we all, a lot of us had that same thing happening, happening to us in, in our time too. Um, you turn into a teenager, you know, and it's a big thing, and next thing you know, you're like, there it is. It's, it's all kinds of uh, things that come at you. Um, 
But anyway, you know, I just wanted to talk about my, my grandson being here today in a safe and sober environment and, and loving people, caring people are, are around him. And hopefully he'll always remember that. He'll always remember all of you, not just me or not just something, but all of you that put the time in to come here. So um, thank you. Yes, thank you. Happy birthday. <laughs> So yeah, we want to talk briefly about indigenous land management. Um, and this is uh, for the purposes of trying to help the world have a little more faith up in the leadership of indigenous peoples uh, within land management. And also to remind our own people because a lot of us as indigenous peoples, we went to the boarding schools, our parents went to the boarding schools, our grandparents went to the boarding schools, and a lot of our traditional knowledge was lost. And so what I've been trying to do is excavate through fossilized pollen records, through tree ring data, through uh, the diaries of explorers and co uh, colonists. Uh, what did we do here and what kind of creations did we uh, manifest through our relationships with the land? So I'm gonna just go through briefly a few examples to illustrate the ways in which indigenous peoples had a profound influence on the way the land looked and the way the land tasted. So I'm going to start first with the Shawnee ancestors of Kentucky. So in Kentucky, we were able to take out a soil core from a pond. And these soil cores can hold up to 10,000 years of information because whenever sediment falls into the pond, it settles to the bottom and fossilizes everything in it. And then a new layer comes and a new layer comes and a new layer comes. So the highest layer is the youngest layer. And what we see when looking at this soil core is about 3,000 years ago, all the fossilized pollen was cedar and hemlock. And then all of a sudden it changes to no cedar, no hemlock, and just chestnut, black walnut, hickory nut, uh, and other domesticated food species that so the Shawnee ancestors were creating such as uh, sunflower, goosefoot, uh, sumpweed, and we see the pollen profile transform into a beautiful food forest. And we see this food forest continue for 3,000 years straight. And what's interesting is we also see the influx of uh, fossilized charcoal for 3,000 years, indicating that Shawnee ancestors managed this food forest with routine fire. Now, why would you wanna burn the land? I'm probably preaching to the choir here a little bit, being in California, but burning the land does many things. For one thing, you would have your old growth mast trees, whether they're oak or chestnut or hickory nut uh, or, or a variety. You would have those things all together um, spread out and in the middle you would burn, and that keeps the meadows open. So you might have like 13 trees per acre is what one elder said, 14 trees per acre. Right now we look out here, there's gonna be hundreds of trees per acre. And they're all fighting for limited sunlight, nutrients, and water. So when you burn, you're keeping those competing shrubs and saplings from creating a thicket and taking over. And you're selecting the trees that you really want to grow hardy and strong. When there's too many trees per acre, you can actually create 
really tall, thin forests. So the Florida riverbanks used to have these gigantic oyster uh, middens. They would eat the oyster and discard the shells. These were not necessarily trash heaps, though. They were actually considered sacred. And there would, in the California area, there would also be burials within these shells. So they're not just trash heaps. Um, but we find these archaeological sites all throughout the Florida riverbanks of people eating massive amounts of oysters. Um, and I'll get into more about that later. So as I was saying, chestnuts. I love chestnuts. They were an important food source for indigenous peoples from Maine all the way down to Georgia. We have a couple guys standing by some old growth chestnut trees. Uh, these were massive trees back in the day. We are currently uh, about 2% uh, two per, uh, 2 of the chestnuts are still alive today. They're almost extinct. They were wiped out by a blight, a fungus, in the 18, early 1800s. And this is because of the mismanagement. When the, when the native people were killed off, the other folks didn't know how to space the trees properly. And when the trees are not spaced properly, the disease can wipe through them, uh, wipe them out much more easily. So again, here's a Tzalagi or Cherokee family next to one of their chestnut trees on the left. Um, you would burn all of that stuff around it so that it could be more like this tree and billow out and not have all this competition around it. This is an artist rendition of an old chestnut tree in the 1800s. Um, and so when you burn around the chestnut tree, you're eliminating competing vegetation. You're also transforming all of this dead plant tissue um, into nutrient-dense ash. And so when you transform those dead plant tissues into nutrient-dense ash, you're injecting the soil system with phosphorus, nitrogen, uh, and potassium, and also charcoal. Some of you are, might be into biochar. Well, this was the original biochar where we would uh, burn around the trees and that charcoal, it filters the water when it rains. It stimulates microbial activity because it's like a little um, uh, apartment building for microbes. And it also aerates the soil. And as we all know, now there's a big trend of charcoal this, charcoal that, right? It's even in the toothpaste. Um, it's a cleansing uh, element and it helps our bodies heal and the soil heal. So here's the pollen profile I was talking about. This red line here is the 3,000 years ago when we see all of a sudden uh, chestnut pollen coming into the picture. This is today. This is the 1,000 years ago, 2,000, 3,000, et cetera. So this is today. So chestnut pollen kind of coming into the picture, hickory nut pollen, uh, black walnut coming out of nowhere about 2,000 years ago, um, and just a more biodiverse uh, food forest was created. And here's the fossilized charcoal. So we see this influx of constant charcoal coming in, uh, indicating that Shawnee ancestors oversaw a chestnut grove food forest for 3,000 years straight without end. Another one I like to talk about, which is a bit hard to see here, is the Baure floodplain aquaculture. And a lot of native peoples worked with floodplains, including here in California. But the Baure people are in Bolivia, South America. And what would happen is, the waters will come up here in the rainy season, flood this whole area, and as they recede in the dry season, they would build these big earthen walls that would capture and funnel the waters into pools and also the fish. So you could catch a fish right here very easily. This is a, a, a digital rendition. They also created these canals for easy uh, transportation. 
So here's some of the things that uh, Baudet people would do. Uh, this is in the year like eight, 800 AD, uh, way before Columbus was born. You have um, massive settlement mounds where they would be dry during the rainy season. You have forest islands where people would plant all of their fruit and mass trees. You have uh, ring ditches around settlements. You have raised fields, raised beds where you could grow your crops. Um, they had these fish weirs, these fish funnels, which again during the dry season would funnel stuff in. Along the berms, you would have all these fruit trees planted, which also attracted game animals that you could hunt. So you had all kinds of a biodiverse food system here. Apparently, there was also a lot of snails, escargot, everywhere. And then reservoirs, where the fish could be caught so that even during the dry season, you have pools of perennial fish supply. It was really interesting, and it was only destroyed in the 1500s when the Spanish came. And um, the Baure people, there's about 2,000 left on the planet, and only a few uh, native language speakers left, so they deserve, I think, a lot of our attention and support. So here's aerial photographs of the earthen berms that uh, are still existent even today, just to give you a, an idea of how massive this project was. The next slide, too, shows that. This is the country of Bolivia, and this black dotted line is about the amount of area that was managed with this floodplain aquaculture technology. So only, you know, like a, a fifth of the entire country of Bolivia was, had these earthworks, these monumental earthworks to uh, sort of work in tandem with the rising rainy season floods and really to put them to a use to create a, a type of an Eden. Now going to a more dry place where I'm from, the neighbors of the Diné are the Zuni, they call themselves Ashiwi, and they have what we call runoff agriculture or alluvial agriculture. And what you would do is you would, it's very dry there, right? So you only have rains in the summer called the monsoons. So the monsoons would come and you wanna funnel all that water into these small watersheds and plant your crops. Here's three sisters, maybe a very light ephemeral dam that could kind of slow the water down when it comes and also spread the water which you've probably heard in permaculture. And what's really fascinating about this system is not only does water come down the small watershed, but also nutrients, because all of these trees up here, all of this forest litter has a whole bunch of nitrogen, phosphorus, soil, organic matter, etc. So when it rains, it not just washes down water, but also fertilizer. So these fields could be continuously planted for up to a thousand years, when we see is a thousand years old, without ever importing outside irrigation or outside fertilizer. It's a self-regenerative system. So as you can see, they call it alluvial farming because you'd plant your crops at the base of small watersheds. And another thing that the Hopi do, one of my Hopi brothers showed me that they'll actually build like walls right here so that when the waters come, it kind of pools up here like a big lake and then sinks to the bottom. And the higher the wall, the more water you can kind of catch. And he'll let the water fill up that pool and sink to the bottom, fill up that pool, sink to the bottom for maybe a year, even two years before he ever plants anything. And I went to his garden and it was a hot July day. This was last year, blazing hot. You know, Hopi Res is dry when it's summertime. And I went to this place where he's been charging it with water for two years and he just scraped off maybe two or three inches of soil and there was wet soil underneath. 
on a hot July day, everything else looked parched because the, the water stays stored under there. Um, and so he said, I can plant my seeds here, Lila, and it cannot rain all year. And my corn will still grow because I've charged this place with water. And I don't need, and that's what they call dry land farming. So we found incredible ways to really harness the little monsoon rains that would come and turn deserts into gardens. Um, so I love to talk about that because it's, it's, it's a way of dovetailing with nature. Instead of forcing the irrigation to you, forcing shipping fertilizer, you just go where nature is already doing that and you kind of follow her lead. And I should mention, they plant enough corn for sometimes, they say, for the birds. So it's not just about feeding humans, it's about feeding the whole system. So um, it's really about feeding all life and making sure that your food system is designed to feed all life, not be human-centric. This is in Australia. This is a 6,000-year-old eel farm, which is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And frankly, this place could be a UNESCO World Heritage Site. You wouldn't know it, but all around us, this whole place was gardened, and people weren't just hunting and gathering. They were uh, harvesting things that they had designed to be predictable. Um, so what happens is with eel, they're a catadromous fish species, meaning they spawn in the sea, and then they swim up to the freshwater to hang out and mature and grow older, maybe meet a wife or a husband, and then they go back out to the ocean to spawn. They're the opposite of salmon. Salmon will spawn in the freshwaters and go out into the ocean to hang out. So they're this beautiful inverse of the salmon. And the, the Gunditjmara people have this 6,000-year-old relationship with the eel. So as they're swimming up and down the tributaries from the sea up into the freshwaters, they're going to be funneling them in certain areas. They're going to be, this is a really old funnel. Um, they're going to be funneling them into little pools, much like the Baude floodplain aquaculture. They're going to be f having weirs where they funnel them into certain places. This is an eel trap. It's made of woven grasses. So the eel will just swim right in and boom, you got an eel for dinner. But it's really important to understand that even though they would funnel the eels and kind of monitor where they went and kind of in a sense a bit control where they went, they were very careful to honor the eel. If you look at the literature, all the Gunditjmara people say, these are our relatives. These eel have fed our people for 6,000 years and it's our duty to protect their land and to protect their waterways and to make sure that they have family to go on for future generations. And one of the things I keep seeing in the literature is I say the most important part of the harvest is what you leave behind. That's the most important part of the harvest. Ensure that you leave behind enough for it to keep going. And not only that, but the tribes here in California, they always say when the salmon come, let the first fastest salmon go first. Don't catch them, you know, because we want those genes to carry on. We want them to go spawn. Catch the laggers, catch the ones falling behind. Um, and so in that way, Native people for thousands of years actually had an influence on the genetics of salmon. So is that a wild salmon? Or is it somewhat semi-cultivated, semi-domesticated even? Are they really having an influence on the genetic makeup of the salmon? So similarly, they would really care for the salmon. And, and, and as they harvest, what they left behind was the strongest eels, right? So it's, it's a really beautiful um, system.
that teaches us to always honor our food and to reciprocate, or else it won't last 6,000 years. It'll last as long as America is, which is not even 300 years, and it's almost falling apart. So um, American grasslands pyromanagement. So this is something that a scientist wrote about the area. He said, the Illinois Confederacy shaped and altered much of this region as an anthropogenic creation. Like many other indigenous groups in North America, their most important tool was fire. Burning the prairies, they made the grasses hospitable for grazers and managed prairie as a game reserve to maximize productivity. Now, what does he mean there? What he means is when you burn the grasslands, you maintain the grasslands. And when you burn the grasslands, in the wake of that ash sprouts nutrient-dense grasses because all that ash has been mineralized become bioavailable to the, to the grass roots and actually speeds up the composting process when you burn. If you just let all the litter stay there, it'll take months, even years to break down into bioavailable nutrients. But when you burn it, you're actually transforming those dead grasses into nutrients right away. So you have nutrient-dense grasslands coming up in the wake of the fires. And who loves nutrient-dense grasses? Well, herbivores. Elk, deer, buffalo, we believe horse was here before Columbus. That's another exciting field of research. Um, sheep, all kinds of undulates that we used to take care of in this continent, many of which are extinct now. Um, so you would have burning, ironically, brings more grass and more healthy grass. And if you don't burn, it can collapse into shrubby tree area where the grasslands are um, collapsing into these mesic forests and shrublands. And one of the most endangered ecosystems in America today is the tall grass prairie. And there's whole nonprofits and movements dedicated to bringing back the tall grass prairie. Uh, part of the reason it's gone is because of the prohibition of indigenous fire. So the Miamia lunar calendar, their September moon is the grass burning moon. The Miamia people are indigenous to what we now call the Ohio River Valley. They're a beautiful people, you'd be lucky to hang out with them. And they're one of those native peoples who just won't give up. <laughs> Their language is dead, but they're, the Jesuits trans, tra translated the whole Bible into their language. So they have all these words left and they're reviving it from the dead. And they are having a beautiful Miami Center at uh, Miami University in Ohio, where they are doing their own research and they're creating their own publications. And they say that the, the September moon, the full moon, is the grass-burning moon. That's how important burning was to Native people, that we did it every September and we even had a moon named after it. So the next slide has some of their words from their publication. In Sashakayolia Kilswa, aka the grass-burning moon, we see fire as something that restores and gives new life to the prairie. Fire helps clear the land of old grass and brush and open seed pods that have fallen to the ground. Because of fire, new flowers and plants emerge in the spring. So they've been bringing back their fire to the Ohio River Valley very systematically. Everyone's scared of fire. They watched too much Bambi as a kid. So they're like, no fire, Smokey the Bear said so. And it's like, actually, if we don't burn, we're gonna pay for it. I love this author, his name is Stephen Pine. He said, Earth demands her tithe of fire, and if we do not give it to her, she will take it. <laughs> if we don't burn, she's gonna take the fire for herself, and as we're seeing, 
So the tithe of fire, the offering of fire, we must give uh, routinely. And that's how almost every corner of this continent was uh, applied with good fire, medicinal fire. Um, and so when you have 13 trees per acre, you're never gonna have a catastrophic fire. There's not a whole bunch of trees built up. And right now it's not just climate change that is causing these California fires. It's also the prohibition of native fire over centuries, which call, causes a fuel buildup. And then all these trees are growing close together, competing for limited sunlight, limited nutrients, limited water. So they're all dried out. Then you add climate change on top of that with drought, they're gonna be extra dried out. Trees have immune systems, so they're all sick, right? Because they're competing for limited nutrients. And what you have is a tinderbox waiting to go up in flames. So it's really important to space the trees and to maintain that spacing through periodic fire. Um, and echinacea, we might all like echinacea. This is one of those pyro-adapted flowers, you know, the medicines. A lot of medicines come up in the wake of fire. So echinacea is one of those pyro-adapted seeds. Sometimes the seeds, the outer shell is so thick, it needs fire to break it down so it can germinate. A lot of these plants, uh, even the California oak, you'll notice has a real tough bark. That's a fire-resistant tree because it's co-evolved with California fire for so many millennia that it has grown to be resistant to fire. I really like this book on the left called Forgotten Fires. It was written by Omer Stewart in 1908, and it literally goes state by state of this whole country and unearths everything anyone's ever written about how native people burned the land. And it goes region by region. And this guy was obsessive. He has citations from the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s. He compiled everything he could get his hands on about stories of how the Indians were always burning, you know, always burning stuff. And this picture is in Texas. This is a, a buffalo pasture that was routinely burned. Um, and you see really deep topsoils. Because when you add that ash every year, little by little over time, you get these deep, over thousands of years, four feet deep topsoils. And then when the colonists came, they were like, oh cool, this is fertile ground, nature's bounty. God given, little did they know that it was actually human constructed soil systems assisted by fire. And another cool thing is that when you burn, you're actually increasing the water infiltration rate of the soil because you create a spongy soil. So when it rains, that water is gonna sink in versus going off in an erosion style. And so it's really interesting how fire and water interplay. And the Oglala Aquifer as we know it, which is this gigantic underground ocean, right, from Canada down to Texas, was actually facilitated by human fire. Creating those spongy soils, we helped to recharge and augment the Oglala Aquifer in a human way. People think the Oglala Aquifer is a natural born phenomenon, and it is, but it was assisted by constant human fire for thousands of years. Um, and so now this very same place, if you go to it now, is all covered in shrubs and trees. So fire and grasslands and buffalo all were interdependent. Um, it's very uh, beautiful how it, how it all works out like that. So similarly, the anthropogenic cane ecosystems of the American South were also dependent on fire. So cane, uh, is also uh, another word for bamboo. 
there is an indigenous bamboo species to this continent that many of us don't know about because it has been reduced to only 2% of its original habitat. The bamboo of the American South, we're talking Mississippi, Georgia, um, Alabama, we're talking Louisiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee. There's a giant cane, which is this one in the center, and there's a switch cane, or river cane, which is a smaller one. And this species was so important. They made everything out of the bamboo. They made baskets, they made arrows, they made flutes, they made rafts, they made housing, they made clothing. It was the hemp of the American South before Columbus was ever born. And they became so connected to it that in a sense, southern nations, whether it be the Muscogee, whether it be the Chata, whether it be the Chickasaw, whether it be the Tsalagi, whether it be the Seminole, they are the bamboo and the bamboo is them. So when you destroy the bamboo, it's almost like you're destroying the people and vice versa. Because the bamboo actually depends on human management. And what I mean by that is, again, limited sunlight, limited nutrients, limited water. So bamboo is so fast growing that it will choke itself out if it doesn't have something, knock it down, burn it, harvest it. It depends on constant human disturbance to not collapse in on itself. And so they would burn it a lot. And every time you burn the cane, it actually grows back younger, faster, stronger. So what happens is buffalo were also here in the American South and they love bamboo, just like a panda. And they would like eat it. So you have this is the bamboo belt, or rather the buffalo belt, sorry. We think of buffalo only being here in you know, North Dakota, South Dakota. There was buffalo down in Louisiana, all throughout the South, as far east as Pennsylvania. And buffalo were an important part of the whole um, American ecosystem. And so in the South, they have buffalo ceremonies, they have buffalo songs, they have buffalo dances, because in the South, they had a strong connection with the buffalo. So the humans would feed the cane by burning it and making it grow more. The, the cane would feed the buffalo, and the buffalo would feed the humans, and the humans would feed the cane, and the cane would feed the buffalo, and the buffalo would feed the humans, and the human would feed the cane, and so on and so forth in this cycle. Uh, there was obviously more elements to this oversimplified thing, but these three elements were really important in the South. Um, and when the Spanish came, Hernan Cortez and all those guys, or DeSoto rather, DeSoto and all those crazy guys who came to Florida um, and uh, Georgia and those areas, they noticed that the native people foraged uh, and pastured their buffalo on the cane. So their cattle, the early Spanish cattle, really were um, in a relationship with the cane as well. And there's a whole story about that, about how native people started to be like cattle people, you know, uh, cowboys too down there, and how they started to uh, work with the cane. But unfortunately, what happened was whenever colonists saw a cane break, a big bunch of bamboo, they knew that the soil underneath was really healthy because there's that constant burning, right? And they knew that it was a great place to plant their crops. So there's a great book called Raising Cane, and it's all about how cane was replaced with cotton, and cotton industry wreaked havoc on the cane ecosystems, as well as other crops, barley, you know, all the different things they were growing in the south, but especially cotton. They would see a big cane break and they say, great, 
burn it down, let's plant some cotton. And so they knew, it was almost like an indicator. Wherever there was cane, there was good soil. So um, we're trying to constantly bring back the cane. And there's other species like that around the country that we need to bring back in addition to bringing back our people. Um, so we're, we're kind of work together, right? If you, you notice a lot of the like percentages of like habitat reduction are equal to the percentages of the native population that was broken down, 98%, right? 98% of the cane was erased, 98% of native people in the south were also erased. So we kind of, we moved together and when we strengthen one, we strengthen the other. So this is the Chesapeake Bay, the Algonquin oyster fisheries, and the Smithsonian Insider recently published ancient Native American methods may be key to sustainable oyster harvests because what they found was ancient oyster piles, much like the ones in Florida, and they started to radiocarbon date all of these shells, bunch of crazy obsessive nerds, you know, just looking at thousands of shells, and they found that native people in the Chesapeake Bay, which we now call Washington DC, harvested and collected oysters out of that estuary for 3,000 years straight without end. And not only did they harvest these oysters for 3,000 years, the oyster shells actually got bigger over time. Meaning not only did they deplete this source, they actually augmented the strength of this source over time. And oysters are really important because they actually filter the water. So as you augment and protect oysters, you're creating health in the whole estuary. So native people obviously knew this. Now, once again, uh, the oyster population in the Chesapeake Bay is reduced to less than 1% of its original population. And again, there's all these nonprofits of like, oh my gosh, the Chesapeake oysters, how do we bring them back? Um, and so the Smithsonian was like, hey, maybe we should look at what native people did. And native people were like, yeah, we've been saying that for 500 years, but now the Smithsonian said it, so now it's real. <laughs> but it's okay, we'll take what we can get. And so um, really bringing back the oysters has been helpful where they can. Um, they were mostly wiped out due to dredging, you know? They were like, oysters were so big here, you had to cut them into thirds to put them in your mouth. And so that was very lucrative, very profitable. And so the, uh, the harvesting of the Chesapeake Bay oysters led to the destruction of that population. And the dredging, you know, they get a big shovel thing and they just go and like break the whole oyster bar and destroy the whole oyster uh, habitat. So again, the most important part of the harvest is what you leave behind, you know? And folks didn't realize that. They're just like, ooh, maximize profits. Let's, make as, let's get as many of these oysters out as we can. And also eutrophication, or the influx of fertilizers into the river systems, which then messes up the pH level of the estuary, which then hurts the oysters. So there's, that's another reason the oysters went down. So um, I like to look at indigenous fisheries, and the, I think the next slide is also one. Um, the herring, uh, so the Heltzuk herring row farms are located above Vancouver and Bella Bella Island. And the Heltzuk Nation is a really beautiful people that I was honored to go visit. And what they do is they honor the herring, which is a little silver fish that loves to lay its eggs everywhere. And those eggs provide the caloric base for the entire food web. So the humans eat the eggs, the salmon eat the eggs, the um, killer whales up the food chain, the, the eagles, the wolves, they have these sea wolves that like swim into the ocean and eat the eggs. 
They have um, bears eat the eggs. And so these eggs actually are a gift that the herring give to the whole coastal ecosystem every February. And their new year, their calendar starts in February because that's how important the herring are. They mark the beginning of a new cycle. So the next slide shows the herring spawning on the left, covering everything with eggs. This is a hemlock branch. They will submerge hemlock into the coastline to give the herring more surface area to lay their eggs. They will also uh, plant uh, kelp, hand plant this fast growing kelp. And so they're doing a service to the herring and saying, hey, we know you need to lay your eggs. We know you need more surface area. Let us put this in the coastline. So back in the day, before the Heltzuk people were reduced by 98%, used to be much more Heltzuk in the area. So you can imagine everyone with these floating logs with the hemlock branches tied with a stone to make it go down into the coast, um, being covered in eggs uh, and the harvest. And again, leaving behind a lot of eggs so that they will hatch, so that the herring will come back the next year. So herring on hemlock is a delicacy, and it is the merging of the sea and the land, which is what they believe that their people represent, because they're coastal people. And it has a delicious hint of pine uh, on, the, on the herring roe, basically caviar, uh, when you eat it. And it's really delicious. Um, the next slide is the kelp, the herring roe on kelp, which they call spawn on kelp. And so this uh, kelp actually grows very fast and again the herring fish will have more uh, land so to speak to lay their eggs and so it's a very interesting system whereby the Heltzuk are very intentionally helping the herring to help the whole system and it's very interesting how this is a non-human centric food system this action, this farming, if you will, is designed to feed all life, the killer whales, the wolves, the bears, the eagles, everything. So they understand their role as a human being that with their bare hands, they can actually augment the vitality of the entire ecosystem. And so they understand their role as a keystone species. And humans can be a keystone species and they're proving it. And a keystone species is one which the entire ecosystem depends on them. It's like a linchpin, like a beaver will build a dam and it creates a, a lake. And that lake has moose come to drink and fish and da 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 da, plants. And so when you kill off the beaver, which they did do, you destroy all of these aquatic ecosystems and all those things die with it. So the beaver is a linchpin and a, what they call a keystone species. And every species is important. It's not to say one is more important, but some have a really important role. And so humans can be that again. We can be a linchpin that upholds the vitality of the biodiversity around us. We could be such a gift to the earth that if we were to leave, she would actually miss us. And that's what I think we are trying to do today, to transform from a role of a leech to a role of a keystone species that augments and supports all life around us. So the next slide is actually going to another keystone species uh, case study in the Brazilian Amazon. So this is the country of South America, right? And this square is this whole big chunk of South America. And each one of these black dots is where they find what we call Amazonian dark earths all throughout the entire um, Amazon River Basin. 
It's also called terra preta, terra preta. And what it is is on the left, you see this black topsoil, and then underneath this nutrient-poor clay. All of that black, loamy soil is man-made, human-made, woman-made, people-made. And so without the mebengokre, or the kayapo, which is this guy in the middle, they wouldn't have that soil system. And the way they create it is through a constant influx of fertilizers and inputs, burning the crop residues, burning the forest floor, putting even their pottery, they break up the pottery, put it in the soil when it's done, and that aerates the soil, it helps retain moisture in the soil. They also will put like old termite piles in the soil. It's constantly putting this compost into the soils such that over time, they created an entire soil horizon within the Amazon River Basin. And we often think of the Amazon being this big, booming, uh, biodiverse area. But I didn't realize this, but I learned that Amazonian soils are actually incredibly nutrient poor. It's hard to grow stuff in the Amazon. So without this really advanced composting system, we wouldn't have the Amazon we know and love today. How crazy is that? And that's what we're trying to say across the continents, is that do not view this place as wilderness. Do not view this place as pristine nature. Do not view this place as terra nullius. Do not view this place as virgin land. See it for what it is, which is the relic of thousands of years of human management, intentional cultivation. We were not passive hunter-gatherers hoping to find a berry to eat or a deer to hunt, but we were actively gardening the land on regional scales. And that's what is so fascinating, that human beings had such an incredible impact from Alaska to Patagonia on how the way the land looked and how the way the land tasted. So the next slide is sort of the takeaways. You know, habitat expansion, expanding habitat. We saw that with the buffalo, right? The more you burn, the more grasslands you create, the more pasturage. One thing I didn't talk about is the clam gardens of the Pacific Northwest, where they would actually augment clam habitat by building these intertidal rock walls along the coastline. 6,000-year-old intertidal rock walls. We also see this with the eel farms, you know, creating little reservoirs, creating little pools, expanding the habitat of the eel. We also see this with the, um, the um, Amazonian dark earths, right? They're expanding the habitat, uh, the soil system on which certain plants can grow. So it's all about making a home for your food and your food will come to you. It's very beautiful. Um, so reciprocity. You know, you have to give, feed the hand that feeds you. Honor the fact that the buffalo are feeding you, so therefore feed them back. And I heard some Cali elders say, if the deer look hungry, do a burn. You know, give them some grass, give them something, some munchies to munch on. You know, help out the deer. Um, and the herring, oh, the herring are feeding us and everything else. Well, let's give them some surface area to lay their eggs. Let's give them something to hold on to because without us, it's just rocks and the eggs can slip off and da-da-da-da. So it's really important to feed the system that you are a part of. Holistic management and landscape scale management, meaning these people were not taking care of little plots, like a little regenerative farm, you know? They're taking care of an entire watershed. They're taking care of an entire estuary. They're taking care of an entire 
Amazon River Basin, you know, really looking at ways in which we can not just do small little gardens, but garden the land on regional scales. That's what we're being asked to do, I think, and what we've done before. Um, millennial scale, every single one that I've showed you today is um, at least a thousand years old. You know, some of them, as you could tell, were 6,000 years old. The oldest case study I came across was the Shumash abalone fishery. We have archeological records of them consistently harvesting abalone out of the Channel Islands for 11,500 years straight, without end. Um, this is what we now call Malibu, California, right? That was a big booming, it's, it's fitting that that's where all the wealthy people live because that used to be like a place of wealth for the Shumash people, An incredible abundance. The sea otters, the, the abalone, the kelp forest, the fishing, uh, all the things that they did to keep that place vibrant and alive. Um, consent and free will based, you know, uh, letting your food come to you. We're, notice none of these are really caging anything. None of these are really, except for maybe the eel farm, but they're really funneling them and letting them out again. They're really helping to keep that flow going so that they can freely go back and forth from the ocean to the headwaters. So it's really about not caging your food, but building a home and your, home will your food will naturally come to you. Um, stewardship mentality, you know, this notion that we are not here to take, we are here to protect, we are here to guard, we are here to nourish everything around us. So the stewardship mentality is something you'll find in native nations around the world, not just here, but in Australia, in Norway, in uh, Asia, in Africa. You ask these indigenous peoples and they say, well, we were told by our elders that the creator put us here to care for this land. We have a sacred covenant, a divine covenant to care for this land. And everywhere you go, I'm sure native people, you see this. They always say, I'm here to take care of this spot. Creator put us here. And so that's the stewardship mentality that I see in every case study is we are divinely assigned to a homeland. Um, and wherever we find ourselves, it is our duty to care for it, to garden it, to nourish it, and to protect all life in the area. That's different than a capitalist mentality, right? It was like, oh cool, how can I make money off this, right? So when humanity turns into that stewardship mentality again, I think things will naturally heal. And, and that's the core, the rudder that steers the ship towards either sustainability or collapse, is do you have a stewardship mentality or an extractive mentality. So the next one, some of the recommendations I have are regional food shed cooperatives. Instead of Jack doing this and Jill doing that and Bob doing that, why don't we collapse our holdings into one system so that we're collectively, holistically taking care of a whole watershed together. Instead of parceling each other out, fencing the fence line and acting in silos, if we do that, we cannot harness the larger natural forces going on around us. Like the clam gardens, they depend on the tide coming in and out. They work with the moon. They let the moon do the work for them. They just build the intertidal rock wall which catches uh, water and sediment, but they're working with the larger forces of life around them. And if we're all in our own little properties, doing our own little thing, we're not gonna tap into those larger forces that are going on all around us. Um, DNA and ancestral diet, you know, think about what did your ancestors eat? It's really important. Uh, we co-evolved with some species for thousands of years 
and our bodies come to depend on that. Like my people, we have a churro sheep, four-horned sheep, and that sheep we can metabolize much better than the European sheep, which is more marbly. Ours is lean, and so we actually can't metabolize those European sheep. So my people are have mostly European sheep now have replaced our endangered churro, and we're eating, but we're not being fed, you know. And so um, the salmon nations here, they I forget the estimation, like. 300 kilograms of salmon per year per person, they used to eat a lot of salmon. And now how much salmon do they eat per year? Maybe zero, maybe one pound a year. That affects the body. When you're co-evolving with salmon for that long and all of a sudden it's gone, your DNA is going to suffer because it needs that relationship to activate certain genes and to be truly deeply nourished. Same with the Scottish. There's a certain species of salmon that uh, flows into Scottish rivers. That uh, salmon is really important for Scottish people to eat. It's even down to the subspecies. Sometimes you not just need to eat salmon, but you need to eat your salmon. That's what your people took care of and re rekindle that connection to that species. Or maybe it's the acorn. We are not just here in a vacuum. We exist in relationship with so many DNA, so many species. Uh, I could go on about that, but I will spare you. Um, <laughs> but the pilot projects, um, the pilot projects are nice because you can prove something um, works, right? Like it's hard to get whole policies shifted. It's hard to get this whole land back in the hands of kinesthetic people. I wish it was easier, <laughs> but you can at least do a pilot project on an acre, five acres, 10 acres, uh, 50 acres and say, look, we know what we're doing. If, if you can prove it in one place, sometimes that helps change the way people think about food and water. So don't feel discouraged if you can't boil the ocean in a day, you can't change the whole world. You know, you don't need too much land to change the way people think about food and water. You know, find, find a pilot project where you can prove your point and that will then um, spark more land back and more um, transformation of how we treat the land. Local indigenous species, meaning honor what's there, don't supplant it with uh, foreign species. You, and you can bring foreign species, but you have to be careful, right? Like a lot of the um, uh, eucalyptus in California. Eucal eucalyptus is not from California, and it supplanted whole oak groves. So we have to be very careful, because when you take out the oak groves, there's all these other things that have come to depend on that. The little bugs, the little this, the little that, the microbes, the fungus that has co-evolved. So when you take something out, you can take out a whole system. You have to be careful. And probably the greatest recommendation I have is land back. Returning lands to the stewardship of indigenous peoples. That's probably the most effective thing we can do. And also we as indigenous peoples recovering our knowledge, which is what I'm trying to help us do. I'm sure giving this PowerPoint, it's, it's, it's activating our genetic memory, right? It's like, oh yeah. And my grandma told me that, and my aunt told me that, and oh, maybe we did this. You know, as Native peoples, we're recovering a lot of our knowledge so that when the land is returned to us, we know what to do, or at least have a hint of what to do, and follow our nose, follow our heart, and, and, and continue to rekindle the ancient land management practices of our ancestors. Uh, indigenous peoples, you may have heard the statistic, uh, represent 5% of the Earth's total population, but they oversee 80% of the world's total biodiversity. So what we have is a really small amount of people, indigenous meaning they're still on the same homelands they've been managing for thousands and thousands of years. 
and they oversee 80% of the world's biodiversity. So in theory, when we return lands to native peoples, we will augment biodiversity and hopefully maybe even prevent this collapse that looks like it's on the horizon for not only our species, but the entire planet. Um, but returning lands not only heals biodiversity, it not only um, augments vitality of the local land, it also heals history, right? We're healing the soil and we're healing history. A lot of people in Oklahoma, the native people, they're not from Oklahoma, they're from Illinois, they're from New Jersey, they're from Georgia, and they're still to this day stuck in Oklahoma. That's insane to me. Why don't they have a homeland to go back to? We put them on a death march to Oklahoma and we're just gonna be there 150 years later and not fix that? I think our people, all people, multiculturally are in a process of healing that history and doing this land back process really exciting. Some of the Muscogee people who are stuck in Oklahoma just bought uh, with the help of philanthropy and stuff, a thousand acres in Alabama. And they started a language immersion eco-village called Iganyofoloji, which means returning to our homelands. And so this is just one of many examples of land back that's going on, very exciting. So I cannot stress enough land back, returning lands to indigenous peoples to steward them. Uh, even if we don't know fully how yet, you know, give us a chance to have the land so that we can remember how. And, uh, and, and do our pilot projects and practice stuff um, through prayer. You know, that's the big difference of our food systems and perhaps a big agricultural project is it's done in prayer and it's done with uh, invoking the help of a lot of things around us. So I think the last slide, and then I'll stop uh, blabbing at you, is this is the narrative I'm trying to sort of spark and bubble up in American consciousness is that this land is Turtle Island, as we call it a densely populated, extensively managed continent prior to Columbus's arrival. Instead of the other narrative that most of us were taught that it was a sparsely populated, virgin, untouched land. That is the narrative we're trying to squash and say, no, that's not true. By saying that, we're accidentally erasing millennia of human tending, human gardening, human heritage, and a human uh, credit of what we have done. That's like saying French people never had croissants. No, never. You know, imagine the outcry. A French people were like, oh, hell no. We, we folded that 100 times before we put it in the oven. That's our croissant, you know? And so when saying this was terra nullius, we're like, ah, uh, no. Um, all these tree species uh, owe their life and their genetic makeup to our consistent and gentle and regenerative land management. And so that's not to say all natives were perfect, right? We had a lot of issues, but we often learned from them. Like the Chaco Canyon, where my people are from, big famous archeological ruin, right? Five-story buildings, big city. You see copper there from Wisconsin and cacao from the Mayans all over uh, Chaco Canyon. But what's interesting is that that's a place where we fell off the path. We started to have caste systems, we started to have slavery. And because you find hundreds of thousands of logs in this ancient city, which collapsed in about 1100. And by looking at the strontium isotopes in those logs, which I don't even know what that means, but they do that. 
they can tell that those logs came from the Chuska mountain range, which is over 100 miles away. So somehow, hundreds of thousands of logs were transported over 100 miles in the year 1000. You know, that requires a lot of labor. And the high priests would not labor, and the lower caste would labor. So we were not acting right. And they say that Creator sent us a drought to give us the courage to change. And our entire civilization was destroyed because we were acting arrogant. We were acting with hubris. Same with the mound builders, same with the Mayans. They say they left that world behind. We did not collapse though, we did not go extinct. You're looking at the descendant of the Chaco people right now. What we did was we evolved and we realized that all clans are equal. No clan is above or below another and each clan has something to contribute. Each clan has their own role and purpose and they're all equal. So it's really important to understand that Yes, we did have collapse, we weren't perfect, but we used those experiences. We metabolized collapse to make us wiser and more sustainable. So I don't like that book, Collapse, by Jared Diamond, where he says, oh, all native peoples are just dumb and they just collapse. It's like, no, we actually have many, many examples of highly sustainable food systems that did not collapse. And the ones who did collapse usually learned a really good lesson that made them more sustainable in the end. So these are the narratives we're trying to bring forward. And I just put all of this uh, in the service of Kenestet people because I know your people did the same thing here. And I pray and hope that we can tap into our genetic memory and rekindle and revitalize all of that in this area as well. So I'm officially done blabbing at you. Thank you all very much. And I'll pass it to my brother here. Joe, right? So I'd like to acknowledge one of the uh, funders that helped us put this on today, Redwood Forest Foundation. There's some Redwood Forest Foundation people right here. Put your hands up, take a bow, whatever. Um, with what she just said, you know, Redwood Forest Foundation is also working with us, with the Kinesthet people, to do a lot of what. Um, Lila talked about. So, so this is going to be a big project. We have some acres that we're going to work together with native land management practices brought forth by the Kinestet people. And uh, I'm a part of that. My, my family is a part of that. Native Health and Native Hands is a part of that. Eel River Wailaki are a part of it. And Redwood Forest is helping, helping to make this come alive for us. So I'm really happy that right now we're actually doing something for the land and we're actually changing um, uh, what's been happening, you know. So give yourself a hand, Red Ruffy. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody, Des is going to jump up here and give us a song if everyone wants to find their seats and we can get this started. Please and thank you. Hello, everyone. I was asked to come and speak um, to support this beautiful event. And uh, I am going to be telling a story. And I'm going to start off by just saying a prayer in my indigenous language. And I am going to sing a song in my language as well.
Ahmoli ok atualshi. Isatuya nahuel. Isatuya chowuk nahuel. Isatuya manawishasi. Isatuya alma asi. Ah ihuhu kuya kese. Ahinta hushi ia hawalshe. Ah mi me. あ、そう、あ、しゃい、あ、ひん、ほうはうかわうし。あ、もりおくあとわうし、あ、みいのまんのく、ほうはうかわうし、あめうちょうせ、はいか。あ、もりおくあとわうし。はいあ、かめうか
I had a friend who worded it really beautifully once. She said that the language and the land, that they shape each other over time. And so when we're speaking in our indigenous languages, that land has a genetic memory. And so when we're speaking in our indigenous languages, it actually has the ability to wake up the medicine that is deep within that land. And so not only does it connect us to the land, but our language also connects us to this way of life. And I have come to learn that these ceremonies and these dances and songs and language and the traditional ecological knowledge that it is more than just something that people can read about in books. It's, it's an energy, and energy never dies. And so what that means is that all of the memories that they can come back to us through our dreams and through our visions, and really what we have to do is we just have to be still and we have to listen and we have to learn how to trust our intuition again and so it's definitely been um, a journey. And so I started off wanting to learn how to speak my language and my auntie, Laura Somersault, a lot of people say she was um, the last fluent speaker, but that's not true. There were many fluent speakers, um, not just her. It's just that what's happening is that a lot of our young people don't have the ability to sit down with the elders, and unfortunately, um, there are a lot of elders who are passing away, and there are some people that still know bits and pieces of the language, um, but for me personally, I had to learn a lot of what I know from just listening to the recordings of my Auntie Laura, and I also had to go and read books um, that were that were full of these things that I didn't understand because our languages, they, they weren't originally written down in books. Our languages, they were um, passed down through oral tradition. And so when these linguists came in and recorded our language, they made all these fancy symbols that I didn't know how to read. And so I had to go and I had to sit down with a linguist and he had to teach me how to um, you know, pronounce all those little symbols in the book. And so that was, for me, the beginning of my journey was learning at the same time as I was wanting to teach others because I knew that I wasn't the only one who wanted to speak the language. I also knew that I wasn't some kind of expert, but that if you know, I just listened to the recordings and, you know, if I did my best, um, you know, to, to work with the linguist, making sure I was pronouncing everything okay. And, um, yeah, if, if I just incorporated language into every aspect of my life, that it could bring a lot of healing. And so, in the beginning, it was a little bit frustrating just because I um, figured out that even though I wanted to learn the language, that there was a lot of people who felt like there was no point in learning the language. They said, oh, well, um, you know, nowadays um, there aren't that many people who are speaking the language. And so, like, how, how is this, how is learning how to speak the language going to help you get a job? You know, you should learn how to speak Spanish or, you know, some, something like that. 
And, um, you know, so many people, they just are living these lives where um, they're just trying to make money, they're trying to survive. And so I had to try my best to be patient. And so, um, you know, Lila and I were talking in the car and she was saying, Desi, you could just be like that auntie who she just doesn't quit. And, you know, she could just keep sending a word of the day. And in the beginning, everybody's like, gosh, why is she, you know, sending me all this stuff that, um, you know, I, I don't want, but then, you know, maybe over time, right, if I just don't give up and I keep sending them that word of a day, then maybe it could be 10 years later, but somebody will eventually catch on to, oh, wow, you know, she's been doing it all these years, right? And so um, I think that that's something that it takes, that's something that it takes is it takes consistency. And it takes a lot of patience. And it also um, requires a lot of resilience on our part because, you know, it can be really frustrating. And, um, you know, I didn't want to just learn about language. I also wanted to learn about, um, you know, the plants and the animals. And, and I remember I would get so frustrated because all these people um, that weren't native, right? They had read all these books about my ancestors and they'd, and, and then sometimes, right, like, it was frustrating because sometimes I would actually have to learn from them, right? Like, oh, yeah, like, I know all of the different sounds of all the different birds, and I'm not native, but, you know, but I can still teach you. So that required me to have that humility, and I was like, okay, even, this per even though this person isn't native, like, this person knows, you know, the language of the birds, and um, as a native person, it's, it's really important for me to understand that too, right? And um, so, you know, it can be difficult to, to navigate this world. It could be, you know, really easy also as indigenous peoples to um, get discouraged when we become like tokenized, right? Where people are like, oh my gosh, you're indigenous. Like, do you know everything, right? And, and then I have to constantly um, come back to this place where I just um, believe in myself, right? Even though I don't have a PhD yet, even though I'm not a, an ethnobotanist and all of these things, it's super important for me to just say what I do know. And um, you know, that's something that one of my elders that, that they are constantly reminding me is they say, you know, you do know the land. You do know it, it's, it's a part of your DNA, right? And when you speak from your heart and those ancestors are flowing through you, um, you know, you, you can't go wrong. And so that's something that, that I'm learning is how to get out of my head and how to understand that it takes courage to take that first step, right? And so that's what I've just been trying to do. And so I do not come from a federally recognized tribe. There are some tribes that they have sovereignty over a piece of land where they all live together. My tribe does not have that. I come from the Mishawawapo tribe. And so a lot of us live all over California, all over the United States. Um, you know, we don't get together as often as I would like. And so when I'm thinking about things like, well, how do we, how do, we do things like land back? Or how do we do things like, um, you know, take care of the land? And I think that a big part of it starts with just people falling in love with the land again, right? And so 
I'm actually going to be having a cultural gathering soon. And not only is it going to be a language immersion, but it's also going to be an opportunity for the people in our tribe to learn about the native plants and the animals that are at Sugarloaf Ridge State Park, which is a place that I've been spending a lot of time. And I've been learning the plants of all of these living beings. And I had an auntie who she said something really special to me. And she said, you know, you can point at that tree and you could say, oh, yeah, I can, uh, you know, use that tree for this and I can use that tree for that. But when we point at things um, and we just say what we can get from them, right, we're also forgetting that that is a living being that provides so much for not just human beings, but for the whole planet. And that, that tree, it has a story, right? And so it's important for us to sit with that tree long enough to be able to understand that story. And so for me, that's been one of my biggest inspirations is learning the stories of how everything is interconnected. And being able to tell those stories to the young people in my community where I live. So so, um, you know, there were not that long ago books in Napa Valley saying that the, that, that the Wapo people were extinct, right? And um, there are a lot of people who still don't know that we exist. And so we're constantly having to fight just to say, hey, just so you know, we do exist. <laughs> and we're still here. And, um, you know, where, where I live in Napa and, um, you know, Sonoma, that's a part of the um, traditional territory of our people, it's just full of a bunch of wineries, right? And um, so there used to be so many oak trees, and that was a really big part of, um, you know, of, of our history. It's a really big part of who we are, right? And so... That's just what I've been doing is I've been falling in love. I've been falling in love with all of the biodiversity that's there at Sugarloaf Ridge State Park. I also see how um, even though me and my mom, we were able to get gathering permits um, to be able to go there and gather our things, that there's still a lot of work to be done because unfortunately at that park, they do not allow um, there to be these cultural burns. Um, and that's because they, um, you know, the the government still sees it as a liability, right? Oh, there's houses that are nearby and you might burn one of them down. So, so we don't want you having these burns. Um, but I can see all the overgrown brush that is at these parks. And now that I've been learning the traditional ecological knowledge, every time I go to these parks, I just see the, this big fire hazard, right? It's so beautiful, but it's this big fire hazard. And, um, so, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a work in progress, but for now, um, you know, I'm just bringing my tribe out there just so that way they could at least learn about not only, um, you know, the, not only the, the plants and the animals, but also for, for them to be able to learn about our way of life, right? Because all of these things, they were medicine for us. And so that's what I want to do is I want to go there. I want to make acorn mush with them. I want to go there. I want to make dog bane string with them. Um, you know, I want to um, be able to have them taste roasted bay nuts. I want them to be able to um, have teas that were made from, um, you know, all of our traditional medicines. Um, and yeah, so that's just a beginning place is is that I want them to understand that that everything that we see that that it's medicine and and that we're medicine right and so 
I want us also to be able to um, interact with these places. So that's the thing is, yes, um, you know, we do, we, we dance in our roundhouses and um, there are, you know, California indigenous peoples um, that go to roundhouse ceremonies. Our people also go to roundhouse ceremonies and we do not have a roundhouse of our own yet. Um, but right now we are guests, um, you know, in the roundhouses of the neighboring tribes. And I'm also a part of a dance group. And so it's really important, um, you know, for us to be able to take those prayers out onto the land. Because that's the thing is um, all these ceremonies, they help to wake up that medicine. And so when we go out there and when we have these ceremonial dances on the land, it does make an impact. Um, so not a lot of people um, you know, know this at Sugarloaf Ridge State Park, but we actually had a ceremony there. Um, me and um, some other um, close friends of mine, um, we went down there and we prayed by the water. And shortly after we went down there and prayed by the water, the salmon actually came back and they came back to that same spot that we were praying at and it was incredible because um you know they they were able to to overcome all these obstacles and you don't see a lot of salmon nowadays that was my first time um that i seen like wild spawning salmon um and so that was beautiful and um you know we continued to go there and we continued to lay down our prayers there and so yeah just wanted to um, also share how I'm not just wanting to educate the people within our tribe, but I'm wanting us to be able to collectively take care of these lands. So in Napa, um, which is a part of our traditional homeland, um, there was this area, um, so really there's a big area that was all one big village site, but now it's broken up into all these different parcels. And so, um, you know, one, one area is actually being desecrated. Um, and my mom is actually a cultural monitor for our tribe. And um, I've also been helping to do cultural monitoring. And so what that means is that when the construction workers, when they are over in our traditional territory and they are digging in culturally sensitive areas, then we have to be there to make sure that they're not destroying those cultural artifacts. Um, and so, Anyways, there's this area that they dug up and, um, you know, they found a dance floor and everything and, um, you know, they found a lot of burials and so they, they just, um, you know, kept on digging it because they want to be able to build some fancy hotel, right? And so this place needs a lot of healing. And so we've been to this place and, you know, we've, we've laid down prayers in this place and, um, Shortly after we laid down those prayers, then somebody called us and they said, hey, there's these 17 acres um, that's um, across the river and we would love for you guys to, um, you know, have a say in what happens to these 17 acres. Um, and so <laughs> tribal councils can be very complicated. And um, so we actually didn't go through our tribal council for this one. Um, it was me and my cousin um, who were asked to actually create this um, art exhibit. And we said, well, you know, 
Um, we don't want it to just be like an art exhibit. We don't want it to just be like stories that talk about who we are in this past tense, right? We want people to know that we're still here and we also want to help to cultivate these lands. And we are um, against this notion that it's only one tribe that needs to take care of that area, right? We all need to work together and we need to remember that we're connected to each other. And so for a part of this exhibit, we decided to show how all of these tribes used to trade with each other and how we're all connected. And so we said that what we wanted is we wanted for all the tribes to be able to um, you know, come together to help to take care of this place. So our long-term goal is to be able to have um, you know, um, an elder come out and show us how to tend to those lands, what kind of plants can we grow there um, you know, that can help to restore the ecosystem. And, um, and then you know, from there, we can learn um, how to tend to those lands ourselves. Um, and then um, it can become an educational learning center. So what we want to do is we want to be able to share this knowledge with the community. We want little kids in Napa to be able to come out there and we want them to be able to learn about, um, you know, the stories of the native plants and animals. And um, yeah, we want them to be able to see that we are still living peoples. And so we want to be able to have ceremonies there. We want to invite people to come. And so I just feel like that's really, um, you know, a part of what we need to do is we need to be able to create safe spaces where indigenous peoples can go and we can be connected to the land and we can, um, you know, be able to practice our ceremonies in these safe spaces because this area that I'm talking about is in the middle of downtown Napa. Right? And um, there's more tourists than Disneyland in Napa right now um, in that specific place because of all of the, you know, music festivals that they have and all the winery and everything else. So now when people walk by, they're going to be able to see, hey, look it, that's a space for indigenous peoples. We, we're still there. And, um, you know, we, we just want to, to be able to share with people how, how important these native plants and animals are to us and how without them that, um, you know, really the whole ecosystem will fall apart, right? And you can't just have all these monocrops. Um, and so that's my story that I just wanted to come up here and share with you all just, um, you know, the efforts that I have been making to, to, to relearn um, you know, the culture and to, to teach as much as I can at the same time. So. Rise up, all you warriors of love, all you answers through the prayers of our ancestors from above. I could feel it in my heart. Can you feel it in your blood? I could hear the seventh fire calling us to wake up. All nations rise. rise up. This has been a special episode of Unmanageable. Architects of Abundance with Lila June and Desiree Harp, recorded live at the Mateel Community Center in Southern Humboldt, just over the Mendocino County line, on April 28, 2023. The event was organized by Native Health in Native Hands, and their vision to bring the whole community together around traditional cultural values and practices of the Kinestet people. Many thanks to Perry Lincoln and Native Health and Native Hands for organizing the event and giving our community the gift of Lila and Desi's words. Perry is planning to bring them back to Southern Humboldt this fall for an event celebrating Indigenous women's leadership 
You can find out more about that event and all of their amazing cultural revitalization efforts at nativehealthinnativehands.org. I'm Alicia Bales, and I'll be back soon with another episode of Unmanageable, news from the unruly people and places of Mendocino County, California. If you'd like to be in touch with questions, comments, or story ideas, send me an email at unmanageablemendocino at gmail.com. You can make a financial contribution to keep this podcast going by following the PayPal link in the episode summary. Thank you so much for listening. And now we know we can change it cause that's why we were born We know we are the ones that we have been waiting for Yes, we are the ones grandma has been praying for So rise up Yes, all you warriors of love All you answers to the prayers of our ancestors from above I could feel it in my heart Can you feel it in your blood? I could hear the seventh fire calling us to wake up Pueblo, eh